You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. It is my pleasure to be with you this morning. Your pastor must need another week of vacation. He asked me to come share the word with you, and I was eager to do that and come visit you. I got to meet some of you Wednesday night. I guess I should introduce myself. My name is Martin. You might think Martin Luther. I believe he was here last year. Uh, That's not who I am. I'm Martin Bootser. Martin Bootser, and I was part of the Reformation some 500 years ago because the church was in need of reform. You might know the church now as the Roman Catholic Church. At that time, it was the only church. And there were some things in the church that needed reforming. For instance, forgiveness of sins became a matter of purchasing and indulgence instead of through Jesus Christ alone. There were issues such as worshiping relics, relics like uh, some wood from the cross of Christ, some physical wood, or maybe, maybe a thorn from the crown of thorns, or maybe a vial of blood that maybe that was supposedly spilt there, something like that. These these relics became things of honor and, and, and merits uh, in them, their veneration. That was wrong. There was problems with church government. There was problems with the way that communion was celebrated. And there was really the foundational problem was that the authority of God's word had been done away with. And there was still the Bible, but tradition had overcome the, the word of God. And that was part of our Reformation and what I was involved with. I want to show you something you call PowerPoint. I've learned this week. Is, uh, these, can be, these can sum up. I showed these uh, on Wednesday night to those that were gathered, but these could sum up, although maybe at the time we wouldn't have used them, but they sum up really what the Reformation was all about. And the first one is really at the heart of it that I mentioned, the Word of God. Sola Scriptura. Scriptura. That is Scripture alone. We base our belief, there are creeds and confessions, but all of it is based on the Word of God. And that Word of God leads us to see that it is God's grace alone that is our salvation. From beginning to end, His grace, not our merit, but His grace. And that grace comes as we put our faith, not our works, but our faith and our trust alone in Christ alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. No Pope no indulgence, Christ. And we find Christ in the Word, and so all this is to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And I was thankful just to be part of what's now called the Reformation. I want to explore that a little bit with you. I believe I've got a picture in there of myself at the time. I'd say pretty close, maybe. Uh, That's a pretty good shot. Maybe it was on a Polaroid back then. But that was me at the time, and you can get a picture. Well, I want to tell you some about myself this morning and hopefully also encourage you in God's Word. That's something I hear you read here and you study and you see as your authority, and I want to look at that with you. And so we're going to preach, and your pastor asked me to preach on Romans chapter 15, verse 13, if you would turn there. It's one short verse. I have written a whole commentary on Romans, although it's not translated into English and pretty hard to find these days, so I hear. But nonetheless, we're going to hear from God's Word, 
this morning and also learn a, bit of, a little bit of my history along the way. I want to read from God's Word, the Word, from Romans chapter 15, if you find verse 13, where it says here, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Would you allow me to pray this morning in a prayer of mine from the day? Let's pray. Almighty, gracious Father, for as much as our whole salvation depends upon our true understanding of thy holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and apprehend thy holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand thy gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To thy praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, my story began some now, some 532 years ago, when I was born on November 11, 1491. Perhaps you're a student of history or a student of rhymes, and you know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 one year after I was born, to give you a little perspective. I was born in a town called Celestat, south of Strasbourg, Germany. If you look up Strasbourg now, it's in France. And at the age of 10, my parents moved to Strasbourg. Not sure why they moved, and they left me in the hands of my grandfather till I was the age of 15. And at the age of 15, I joined a monastery, the Dominican Order of the church as a monk. And it was there I grew in learning and I studied, and eventually I was sent to Heidelberg, Germany. And it was there in Heidelberg, Germany, where the, there was a man, the other Martin, who was setting ablaze the reformation of the church at this time. And his name, again, Martin Luther. I even, in Heidelberg, I got to hear him speak. I even got to have dinner with him and got to talk to him and ask him many questions, and he really impressed me so much that I said Luther solved all objections, not with the subtlety of Duns Scotus, that's a a Catholic priest who would try to explain things in certain ways, but Luther came with the penetration of St. Paul, the one that wrote Romans 15. That's how Luther argued from St. Paul, and Luther's concise answers drawn from the Word of God astonished everyone. It was, in fact, his teaching, this teaching of Luther that would lead to my own conversion to Christ around the year 1520, 21, in there. Well, later on in 1521, I actually tried unsuccessfully to dissuade Luther from going to the Diet of Worms. And that Diet was an assembly gathered to have Luther recount what his theology and his books had been. And I tried to dissuade him from going to that. Of course, if you know anything about Luther, he didn't listen to me. He went on his own. And I actually happened to be in attendance at that place. Do you remember where his most famous speech, Here I Stand, where he said, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Do you hear the theme of the Reformation and the Word of God? And so I was there to even hear him at this famous trial. The year 1521, it was a big year because it's also the year that I was able to get my monastic vows absolved, which meant that I could marry. 
And Mary, I did. In 1522, I married my first wife, Elizabeth Silbersnee. Some of you met her on Wednesday night. She, her, too, she was a former nun. And we would have many children, some 13, it's supposed. I would have known then. It's gotten a little foggy now. Uh, but uh, she actually died in the year 1541. She died from a plague along with four of our children. It was quite a time, quite a time of upheaval when all this was going on. Though I pastored in a few different places in Germany, it was while I was in Wissenberg that the bishop actually there, he excommunicated me from the church for preaching. Why? The preaching the doctrines of Luther and because I was married. It was a no-no for the clergy at that time. And so in 1523, 500 years ago, in fact, um, I went to the town of Strasbourg. Again, it was in Germany, now it's in France. I actually do have a map on your PowerPoint to show you where that is. It's very small for you to see, but Strasbourg and the land of Germany as it was later on, we'll get to this, I would head even to England, but that gives you a picture of where I was south of, or north of Switzerland, and Strasbourg is where, really where the bulk of my ministry would take place. If you remember, my parents had gone to Strasbourg when I was 10 years old, and because by God's providence they were citizens there, I was able to take refuge in that city. And for the next 25 years, Strasbourg would be my home, and I would influence from there many in the Reformation time. One of them you may have heard of, John Calvin. He and I had said we both learned from each other, but I was an influence. I think you, he, at the time, eight years the younger to me. And I got involved there with politics. My wife and I, we lodged refugees. I helped to start Christian schools in the town. Really, the town was under Reformation itself. I started a seminary to train pastors. I wrote much. I studied much. And for the better, or many would say, looking back, for the worse at times, I sought the unity of the church. If you remember, I think you've met Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli before, and Martin Luther, they did not quite have the same view on what communion and the sacrament of communion was to mean. I was the one that tried to get agreement between the two. It didn't work. It didn't happen. But that was me that tried to do that. Early in my ministry, I said this, I purposed at heart both to esteem nothing more highly than love and to keep as far distant as possible from party passions and contentions, especially in matters of religion. So I took pains to keep out of disputes by leaving the ungodly to flourish unchallenged and by refusing to cast pearls before swine, by instructing the weaker brethren in a spirit of peace, and by tendering an open ear and mind to brethren more richly endowed with the divine wisdom of the Scriptures. My colleagues would say, and probably rightly so in hindsight, my unity, my desire for it was to a fault. But then again, all of us Reformers... As you would study each of our histories, you would find the faults with us, for we are not perfect like our Savior is. But nonetheless, my convictions, as each of us, were springing from the Word of God, from the Bible, and that conviction to love one another. Well, church unity wasn't my only concern. I'm actually remembered in the books as a dedicated pastor, I preached, I taught, and I had an influence, any influence I had in the surrounding places.
places where I would go to conferences and help to settle disputes and involved in politics and all these sorts of things were really an outflow of my work in the local church as a pastor in Strasbourg. And to me, preaching was one of great importance. I once wrote to John Calvin. I told him, I said, you may find parishes in which there has not been a sermon for some years. And you are well aware how little can be affected for the restoration of the kingdom of Christ by mere ordinances and the removal of instruments of superstition. Even then, there was a controversy over what the preacher should wear and the vestments and what should be worn, to which I said the important thing is that the preachers preach the truth. What they wear while doing it is of no fundamental importance. I wanted the truth to be preached. And it's been said that over the years, by my preaching and teaching, I had built up a strong, exemplary, and influential evangelical Reformed church in Strasbourg. Well, if that's the case, soli deo gloria. So to preach some this morning, I do want to look and help you look at the verse before you in Romans 15, verse 13. Again, where it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As Paul closes out what he's been saying here about building up one another in the church, loving one another, and welcoming one another, he breaks out in this prayer And as you see it, it's a prayer of hope. And I want to first help you define the word hope. I found one of your English dictionaries, newer for me, but it's from 1828. And it said, hope as a verb means to place confidence in, to trust in with confident expectation of good. I want to read that definition again. To place, what is hope? As a verb, to place confidence in, to trust in with confident expectation of good. You notice there the word trust or faith, and there is this confident expectation of good. And who is ultimately good but the God of hope who is God alone? Hope in my time was pretty shaky. As I said, we had plagues, my wife dying of one, there was war, there was excommunication, you name it. And I wonder in your period, since I've just been here for a couple days, if you too have shaky times in your area, in your land, in your world of today, of 2023. Hope in God involves faith and trust and being confident in Him alone. But you might ask, what does faith or what does hope here in this particular verse have to do with with everything that's come before it. It seems like Paul's been talking about building one another up and loving one another, and there's the Jews and the promises to them, and there's the Gentiles, and their hope is in Christ. And what does this last verse have to do with loving one another? Well, I want to read a little portion from a little book that I wrote in the year 1523. And the book's title is Instructions in Christian Love. And I think what I wrote there has a tie to hope and faith and the result of faith and hope and that of loving others. Listen to what I've written in the past where I said, Only faith faith can therefore detach us from ourselves and make us give ourselves over to God the Father as children. When we have thus become true children, our highest concern must be 
to follow the will of this dearest and best of fathers and in all things to live according to his law. And all this is fulfilled if we follow the single word, love thy neighbor as much as thou lovest thyself. As soon as we yield in this to the Father, we completely give ourselves to the service of all, all men, for the joy and glory of our heavenly and dearest of all fathers. This is easy for all those who have true faith. Why? Because faith brings with itself the spirit of children. The Spirit of God, which witnesses to our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we acknowledge and hold ourselves as children and heirs of God and believe ourselves such with certainty, and nothing is more certain than what we believe on the Word of God, we must also acknowledge and hold as the most certain thing of all that we possess and shall receive all necessary things. Only the certainty of being children and heirs of God can give the security of already possessing what is necessary for both the present and the future. Only true faith can put the heart at peace. For faith brings self-denial, a dedication of self to the service of other men, forgetfulness of self, and living wholly for others to the glory of God. If faith is not such, then it's not true and legitimate faith. It is dead faith. It is no faith at all. And the word of St. Paul is clear. He says, you might recognize this verse, By grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not because of works, in order that no man may pride himself on them. For you are his work, created through Jesus Christ for good works, for which God has in advance prepared us so that we, we may walk in them. We can see how clearly this saying states that if we believe, we are through faith blessed, that is, assured of all the necessary things. This does not happen because of ourselves and our own good deeds, but simply by our accepting everything as a gift of God's grace. We are indeed the work of God, created through Jesus Christ, for the accomplishment of good deeds. Do you get what it is I'm saying here and what I've said? This verse before you even, Romans 15, verse 13, and the the hope it implies and with its faith, it will overflow with that hope and that faith and assure God, having met all our needs, it will overflow in love towards others because everything we need has been supplied by God for us. Everything. I might enjoy my brother or sister in Christ. I might enjoy them caring for me and what they can do for me or treating me well. But I am so free to love them and to love others when my hope and my hope is in Christ alone and my faith is in Him alone. And I realize I've got everything I need. And then I can freely love because I'm not depending on anyone around me for what I truly need, which is all found in Christ. All of my hope is in God and not in man, and that frees me to love others. I want to help you look just a little bit more at this verse. And you see here the joy and peace that come from faith. Joy and peace in believing. They're the byproducts of faith. It's really a mark, joy and peace, of those in the kingdom of God. 
Paul wrote elsewhere in Romans 14. He said, Therefore the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Which brings us really to the last line of your English version of the Bible, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And this abounding and this this overflowing, this more than enough hope comes by means of the Spirit of God Himself. In fact, my friend John Calvin, who wrote about Romans here, he has said this, commenting here, that all things are the gifts of the divine bounty. And the word power here is intended emphatically to set forth that wonderful energy by which the Spirit works in us faith and hope and joy and peace. I can briefly think of three ways that the Spirit is powerfully working among us for our abounding in hope. Number one, the Spirit gives us new life as children of God. The Spirit gives us new life as children of God. Some verses, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, thinking of creation, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The Spirit gives us new life as children of God. Number two, the Spirit intercedes for us. I hear you've been studying Romans and you've seen this before in Romans chapter 8 where it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. The Spirit gives us new life as children of God. The Spirit intercedes for us. Lastly, how do we abound in hope by the power of the Spirit? It is the Spirit that grants His Word to us. The Spirit grants His Word to us. 2 Peter 1 says, And we have the prophetic Word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 6, Paul would say there, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. God's Spirit is powerfully to work, to give us new life, to intercede, and to give us His Word. I've said elsewhere, as true faith surely brings true love, 
which makes us overflow with good works toward our neighbor and live not for ourselves but for the eternal glory of God. And as faith comes from God's grace through hearing the word of God, we must above all things adhere to the divine word, to hear it, read it, meditate on it with all diligence and act accordingly. We must let no man keep us from the word of God. For it we must risk honor, life, possessions, and all that which God has given us. That sounds like the Reformation time. I go on to say, for only the word of God makes us wholesome and blessed. The divine word brings faith. Faith brings love. Love brings good deeds as its fruits, after which God gives us the eternal inheritance, a holy, divine, and blessed life. And elsewhere regarding this Word of God, I have said, since all sicknesses and weaknesses in the Christian life stem from the weakness of faith, and faith comes from the Word of God and is strengthened and encouraged by it, all strengthening of the weak and ailing sheep depends on the Word of God being faithfully set forth to them and them being led to listen to it gladly and have all their joy in it. Do you get a sense of my and the emphasis of the Reformation on the Word of God, this Word you have in multiple copies I hear today sitting before you, and the hope you have as the Spirit's written the Word to give us that hope. Let me then tie God's promises, which are found in His Word, Realize in Christ, tie them to hope. And I do this from Romans chapter 4, where it's said of Abraham, it said there, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He, that is Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So faith is connected to hope. And hope is that while we may presently live in trying and hard circumstances, shaky times, we can have faith, believing in the sure and certain promises of God found where? In His written Word to us. A Word written by the Spirit as men were carried along by the Spirit. A Word that we understand by His Spirit to our hearts and a Word preserved for us to this day by His grace. May we abound in God given an empowered hope through his written word. Well, of all places, my story would actually end in England itself. I was in Strasbourg, Germany for many years, as I said, but it was in 1548 that Roman Catholic worship again was instituted in the land by Charles V, the emperor, and I refused to comply and so had to leave. And I left the mainland, the continent of Europe, I left there for England based on an invitation there from Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. 
It was not great. I worked hard in England, but maybe it was due to the dampness in the environment. My health did not hang in there, and I was not there very long, very few years in England before I died in the year 1551. But even though my time was short there, I actually had an opportunity, so I'm told, to influence many of the reformers that would go on to reform England itself. I must have, because after I died, five years later, Queen Mary, you may know her as Bloody Mary, actually dug up, had my bones dug up, burned them at the stake, and scattered my ashes. Must have meant there was some part of me that had worked for the Reformation, both in continental Europe and in England. I may not be as well known now. I don't know of any denomination called the Bootserites. But I credit God who used a sinner like me with my faults to influence the Reformation in these regions and places. My friends, I want to leave you before your great singers come and lead you in that song of my friend Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want to leave you with something I wrote again back in 1523 and apply it to you some 500 years later. A blessing of sorts to encourage you along. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, I thank and highly praise God our Father that he has so kindled in you the love and desire for his word that you now diligently seek and ask for it. Indeed, righteousness and salvation come to us through the word which awakens faith. Hence, St. Paul rightly calls the word a power unto salvation to everyone who believes in it. Since you so eagerly listen to it and so earnestly inquire about it, you are certainly born of God and constitute a true assembly of Christ. For just as a city which listens to the word of the emperor and keeps his commands belongs to the empire, so the kingdom of Christ and the true church are surely where the word of Christ is heard with such pleasure and observed with such diligence. As the word of God cannot return to him void, but must always capture some, it will not fail among you. And so according to the scripture, I exhort every one of you not to live for himself, but for his neighbor. Since the kingdom of God consists not of words, but of power, may the Father of every grace grant through our Savior Jesus Christ that this perfect state may not remain a matter of mere talk among us. May the Father also make it so that you do not stop at these and other merely human suggestions, but devote yourselves to the divine Scripture and as loyal sheep of your true and only shepherd Jesus, listen to His voice so that you may therewith progress in faith, be perfected in all love, live not at all for yourselves, but for your neighbor. And through your neighbor, for Christ, and through Christ, for the Father Almighty. Praise and glorify Him in eternity. Amen.
been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.